This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practice Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. Scott Bateman. Dr. Bateman is Chief of the Division of Critical Care Medicine and Professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Along with us, we also have today his colleague, Dr. Stacy Valentine. Dr. Valentine is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Associate in Critical Care Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Scott, Stacy, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. When I use hemoglobin concentrations, which I'll be using throughout the talk, I'm going to be using the conversion that we use in North America, which is grams per deciliter. So if I say 8, that's 8 grams per deciliter. So the SI conversion for that is grams per liter. Dr. Bateman and uh, Dr. Valentine, um, you both are the authors of many of the recent guidelines in the last year or two on the appropriate management of red cell transfusions in a critically ill child. And um, I wonder if we could begin by asking, could you summarize the salient literature to date on what people should know that you know, led to the work that you know, we will discuss in a bit, uh, but what, pe- what, what should people know about red cell transfusions in the critically ill child? Sure. I think one of the things that we're trying to stress through this process you'll hear about is that there really isn't much literature to support. In fact, there's a a paucity of literature on specifically on red blood cell transfusions in pediatrics and pediatric critical care specifically. So what we did was try to take what we knew and apply it and actually see how we could expand it. And that's what we'll try to explain today. So I can give a little bit of the background just to kind of give you a sense of some of the kind of pertinent data that we have that really kind of formulated where we started from. And then we can kind of go into what process we put into it. So I can start with that. I will say we have no conflicts of interest to report, um, which I think is important for us in this process. We did get funding from the NICHD and NHLBI um, through a, a conference grant to help bring these folks together. We also got support from the Washington University Children's Discovery Grant, Canadian Institute of Health Research, and the Society for the Advancement of Blood Management. We had support from the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators, the POLICI, and the subgroup of that called BloodNet, which was a very active part of our group. Society for Critical Care Medicine backed this, and also um, all of our taxi experts, which taxi was the term we ended up using, which stands for Transfusion and Anemia Expertise Initiative. So when we mention taxi, that's what we're talking about. We started this process looking back at the most sentinel article in Transfusion and Critical Care Medicine, which came out in 1999 by Paul A. Bear, which is in the New England Journal of Medicine, where he was the first study using transfusion thresholds. The standard threshold had always been 9 or 10, as far as the hemoglobin for giving a transfusion. And he published an article in approximately 1,000 adults looking at using 7.5 versus uh, 9.5 as a transfusion threshold, which really was revolutionary to us and our thinking. And really, I remember that article coming out because it was the first article that 
really questioned our standards of care and really we hadn't had anything to say that maybe we shouldn't be giving transfusions as much as we have. And I think at the same time there was data coming out about that there were complications of transfusion that we kind of took for granted. There was always the infectious complication of transfusion, but we also had inflammatory effects of transfusion, whether the transfused blood cells were actually working, you know, were the longer storage uh, red blood cells maybe not as effective. It really started the conversation going that maybe we should be really looking at our transfusion practices. So that study really started the process. There was some data to suggest what are we doing in pediatric critical care? Because that was all of that was in adults, and there was really a, a, a watershed time for adult critical care, but we really we were kind of a little behind in pediatric critical care. So there was a survey done in 2002, which is a couple years later, looking at um, using different clinical states, bronchiolitis, septic shock, trauma, and in a survey, what do pediatric critical care practitioners transfuse by? What do they use as kind of a threshold? And the data suggested that our transfusion threshold in our pediatric patients was much higher, like 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, more, more like an average of about 8 to 9. And this was you know, obviously very different from what was being used in the Paul Iber trials called the TRIC trial. And so that was much higher. And that was really the standard. I was practicing at the time. That was what we did. We just transfused at 9 or 10. That was just kind of the standard of care. And that survey really supported that practice. And then I was lucky enough to get involved with a large multi-center uh, prospective study looking at our transfusion practices and the incidence of anemia in pediatric critical care, about 30 centers across the U.S. and Canada. And we found that actually there's a big burden on our pediatric patients. So it was very relevant to us what, how we transfused. So we found in patients who were in the ICU longer than 48 hours, 49% of the patients who were in that period of time got transfused. And we also found that anemia is a big burden as well. 33% of those patients were anemic on a mission, and another 41% became anemic in the hospital. One of the things that kind of got Stacy and I together is that she, as a resident, came to me, and she was interested in development of anemia and the uh, influence of phlebotomy on uh, the development of anemia in the pediatric critical care area. And uh, we were able to kind of do sub-analysis of this data to show that phlebotomy was a significant predictor of anemia and transfusion, that our practice, what we did to the patients in the PICU actually mattered. Um, we also found that the pre-transfusion hemoglobin threshold of the patients in this study was 9.7. So it was clearly much higher. And this was in about 2005, 2006. So up to seven years after the TRIC trial had come out. And when we looked at what it was that triggered people to give transfusion, what was the reason? Low hemoglobin was by far and away the most common reason, uh, which makes sense. But then so it really argued that how we define thresholds for transfusion was very critical and how we were going to kind of manage how to guide people in do doing transfusions. So also at the same time was um, a study that is really the um, seminal study in pediatric critical care called the TRIPICU study done by Jacques Lacroix from uh, Montreal. It's the transfusion strategies for patients in the pediatric intensive care unit called the TRIPICU. 
um, where he looked at a very similar methodology to the trick trial done by Hebert, um, looking at um, using a transfusion threshold of 9.5 versus 7. So if you had a patient within the restrictive group, which was uh, the 7, then you did not transfuse unless you got below 7. And with a target hemoglobin of about 8.5 to 9.5. And if you were in the liberal group, you got transfused if you were less than 9.5 for hemoglobin, uh, with the goal target post-hemoglobin of 11 to 12. Um, this, the caveat of the study was it was done in a wide range of pediatric intensive care units across actually North America and Europe, but the patients had to be uh, hemodynamically stable. So it was a very specific subset of patients in the pediatric ICU. So um, hemodynamic stability was determined as not needing a, a change in blood. You could be hypotensive, but you couldn't have changed your blood pressure medications or you had no pressors at all. So there was an uh, important piece to put in so that because there was still a sense at the time that transfusion in a hemodynamically unstable patient was probably um, not willing, ready to for prime time as far as a randomized controlled trial. In fact, we were approached at Boston Children's to be a part of that original study, the TriPICU study, and we weren't that comfortable with going into that study because it, at the time it felt like it potentially was putting our patients at risk. That's how far the, the field has come since then because at, at that time we were still very wedded to the you know nine or 10 as a hemoglobin threshold. So it's been interesting to see how that has evolved. So that study, the TriPICU study, really did demonstrate that there was no difference between the restrictive strategy or the liberal strategy of transfusion. So there was, it was a non-inferiority trial, meaning that there was no worse outcomes. There was no new or progressive multi-system organ dysfunction syndrome, no increased risk of MODs with severity of illness for the restrictive group. And importantly, there was 44% fewer transfusions in the restrictive group than there were. The study that I was involved with, with the observational study, did show that there actually was some not a mortality difference, but there was some morbidity difference in the transfused patients versus non-transfused patients, um, indicating, and that is consistent with adult data, suggesting that there is some other potential morbidity related to transfusions in critical illness that we need to address and need to kind of look at it much more systematically. And so it really has solidified our take is that avoiding unnecessary transfusions is really the key to kind of the, why we did this in the first place, because I think that being smart about how we transfuse pediatric patients, I think, is something is our goal. Stacy was actually followed up our phlebotomy work to look at how our transfusion practices have changed since prior to the TriPICU study and uh, following a couple years after. And there has been a gr gradual uh, reduction in the hemoglobin threshold that uh, has been used in pediatric critical care but it's still as higher than what is recommended in adults. And still, we felt like there was still room for improvement in kind of our sense of avoiding unnecessary transfusions, which led us to the point of saying, okay, where do we go from here? And uh, Stacey and I discussed this. Um, we, were, we worked together and we had been involved with transfusion research uh, up to that point. We'd provided some of the background data 
and we felt like <clears throat> there was not enough data, but there was still room for improvement in how we transfuse. And um, Stacy had actually just participated in the Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Consensus Recommendations, which is called PALIC, where they had used kind of a con group consensus process to try to create guidelines and um, criteria for pediatric acute lung injury. And we were talking in the hallway and said, we should do this. In fact, she said, we should do this for transfusion. I said, you're right, absolutely right, we should. And then we made a pact that we would do it together since that time, and here we are. We're still here doing we it. And <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to her because she really helped put together our process really well, and uh, it's um, something we're particularly proud of. So, Thank you. Scott, that's a, a wonderful overview of the literature of really the last 20 years. Um, as you noted, um, I remember being in the conference in the conference room, and and I had concerns about whether we should join uh, Jacques Lacroix's study, and I didn't feel comfortable withholding uh, packed red blood cells. Now I'm asking myself, and now I'm asking you, you're the expert, what was the central hypothesis that drove the trial? What, what was it that they were questioning? We were coming out of the age of normalizing values. We, we learned in mechanical ventilation that high tidal volumes was not good. Uh, was it similarly that people were questioning, are we normalizing values and we shouldn't, or was there emerging evidence that it was impacting somehow the inflammatory response leading to worse outcomes? What drove that, that research? Yeah, I think that's a great question because um, <clears throat> the data really, I th what's amazing to see looking back is how little data there was to show the benefits of transfusion in the critical care realm. And I think that's, I think there was an assumption and an extrapolation from mo historically from, you know, uh, oncology or, you know, uh, bone marrow failure transfusions. And so there was a sense that uh, critical ill patients were anemic, so they, sh they should get transfused just like an oncology patient who may not be able to make red blood cells. But what's, I think, really the impetus to a the original trick trial was that critical illness anemia is different. And I think that the inflammatory state of the body is different in critical illness, and that red blood cells that have been stored and donated and given to a foreign person, I think there was, there was emerging data that it actually may not be that helpful, and we may actually potentially be harming them. And we should really be thinking about this because we really didn't have the data to suggest that it's really making a huge impact. It's it always we always felt like it probably did, and there's we're we're improving oxygen carrying capacity. We're improving their volume, but we were also introducing a foreign inflammatory marker into uh, the body and if, during critical illness. And I think if anything, the impetus I think was really that potentially the benefits that from red blood cells may actually not be as great as we anticipate or have always assumed. And we really need to kind of say, is does transfusion actually improve outcome? And if we don't transfuse as much, is it the same, better? And I think what we, the, that kind of period between 1999 and when we started this process, we found that actually the data was suggesting that lower was actually fine, if maybe even better. And so we should really kind of capitalize that and try to um, help our colleagues in crit pediatric critical care know what is the best transfusion practices because there really wasn't enough kind of guidelines out there for any of us. And so we've felt like we needed to do something to kind of bring 
the experts together and make some thoughtful and evidence-based uh, recommendations if we could. And so now the story turns to you, Dr. Valentine. And um, before you pick it up, could you uh, go back a little bit and tell us, Dr. Bateman alluded to the fact that you approached him as a young resident, but what was it that drove your interest in this research? Yeah, I was a second year resident um, at Boston Children's. Dr. Bateman was my attending. Um, and I had taken care of a number of bone marrow transplant patients who were very anemic um, and were receiving blood cell transfusions. And I couldn't help but notice that with, um, with phlebotomy that we were taking more and more blood. And could we be contributing to this very anemia that this patient had? Um, and I just began to develop an interest in anemia, phlebotomy, um, identifying factors that we could potentially help um, and guide um, transfusion practice. And that really just started the ball rolling. And as I dove deeper and deeper into um, transfusion practices, I became more and more interested um, in why we're doing what we're doing and could we improve what we're doing and how could we, um, through research and developing more evidence and bring people together to be able to provide that research to improve practice as well as to provide guidelines to be able to improve practice. Um, and it started then and has continued many years later um, and uh, through the mentorship of, of uh, Dr. Scott Bateman and all of my colleagues, but it's uh, really that passion for being able to improve transfusion practices in critically ill children. It's a great story. So the, now the story picks up. Yes. Through this process, as, as uh, Dr. Bateman um, had mentioned, I had been on Polik um, and was very interested in bringing this to the transfusion world. Um, so what I'll do now is outline the approach of creating consensus of clinical red cell transfusion decision making for critically ill children. The Pediatric Critical Care Transfusion Anemia Expertise Initiative, the AIMS, are to create evidence-based, and when evidence is lacking, expert-based consensus recommendations on blood management strategies for clinicians caring for critically ill children, aimed to maintain a physiologically relevant hemoglobin, as well as optimize hemostasis and minimize blood loss. Through this process, we took a staged approach. So red cells is only the first stage of TAXI, um, and we decided to focus on red cells first. It was a three-part consensus series. It involved international multidisciplinary experts on red cell transfusion and represented the pediatric fields of critical care, cardiology, transfusion medicine, hematology, oncology, surgery, and anesthesia. We engage experts on guideline development and implementation science from the beginning, and it was modeled after the Polik methodology. Next, I'll kind of go through the process of TAXI. It began in October of 2014, where we prepared for and created an organizing committee. We, at that point, defined the methodology. We selected our topics and selected our experts. The organizing committee was comprised of Dr. Bateman and myself, and the executive committee was comprised of the executive committee from BloodNet, and provided oversight during the entire process. Our 49 experts were from eight different countries and 29 academic institutions. Listed here, and um, we have to thank our taxi experts for all of their contributions to this, and again, represented those fields of pediatric critical care, cardiology, hematology, oncology, um, anesthesia, surgery. We thought it was very, very important to have a multidisciplinary approach when thinking about the critically ill child, and then also had implementation experts as well as the evidence-based medicine experts. During that first meeting, all of the experts convened, and at that point, we discussed the methodology, we finalized it, discussed the subtopic, um, and developed our PICOS questions. It was very important for our evidence-based medicine experts to be able to provide their input, and we followed the Institute of Medicine standards in creating guidelines. 
We also had our implementation experts at that very first meeting to talk about when you're creating recommendations or guidelines, how do we think about implementability from the very beginning before we even develop the recommendation, which is very important. So there are actually criteria for implementation called the GLEAL tool, and it's a guideline for implementability. And in this, our implementation scientists could actually work with the experts as they're developing their recommendation, not to change the content, but to think about the wording very purposely to make sure that these recommendations could then be implemented the bedside, which is the entire purpose of the process. During that first meeting, we finalized the subtopics. We had nine subtopics in total. We first wanted to look at an overview, so the indications for red cell transfusion based on hemoglobin and physiologic thresholds. Where were we at this state? And then population-based, so looking at transfusion thresholds in the acute brain injury patient in congenital cardiac disease, sickle cell, oncologic disease, respiratory failure, shock, life-threatening and non-life-threatening bleeding, extracorporeal support, dialysis, ventricular assist devices, and alternate processing of blood products. We developed our PICOS questions at that meeting. The bulk of the work happened between the first and second meetings where we did a systematic review, a very comprehensive literature search um, using our evidence-based medicine experts and our library and sciences. And we performed those searches. And with that, each of the experts from those subgroups reviewed the abstracts and included manuscripts. They were all reviewed by two. And then any conflict resolution was performed by a third reviewer. We also felt it very important to use the grade methodology to be able to grade the evidence. Um, so that happened during that first and second meeting as well. And then with that entire process, we developed what we call our short text recommendations. So each subgroup, each expert developed those recommendations. And again, with the guidance from the evidence-based medicine experts, as well as the implementation scientists. At that point, we reconvened at our second expert meeting. And during this meeting, we presented each of the short text recommendations. It was very, very important. Some of the recommendations were discussed for two, three hours because it was very, very important to make sure that we were deliberate in what we were intending to recommend. We wanted to ensure the draft recommendations were clearly worded, were unambiguous, and easily understood by each of the experts. Um, the implementation scientists were, again, um, helping us and uh, looked at each of the recommendations and graded them based on the GLEAL tool. And the recommendations were revised until we were able to reach agreement during that meeting. Between the second and third meetings is when we started to vote. It was anonymous, and we used the RAND UCLA appropriateness method. And during this, there were three rounds of online scoring. All the experts were encouraged to vote, and you would vote between disagreement of one or agreement of nine. And if you had a reason for disagreement, if you were equivocal or disagreed, we encouraged to write that reason for disagreement. Any recommendations that had any disagreement were sent back to the subgroups for potential rewarding. The a priori agreement that we decided was 80%. Once that had happened, those two rounds of voting had occurred. We met for our third meeting, um, and then our short text recommendations were discussed. At that point, all the recommendations had met agreement. Um, if at that third meeting, we then discussed the recommendations, discussed those fine-tuning of wording. Even though they had already met agreement, if we made even the slightest change in the recommendation, we sent that back for voting again, because we wanted to ensure that that change didn't alter the meaning of the recommendation. With that, a third round of voting had occurred, um, and all recommendations had reached agreement. During this third meeting, we also talked about implementation strategies. How are we going to take these recommendations and be able to bring them to the bedside? What tools would we be able to use? Um, would we be able to create a decision tree, computerized um, decision support, other tools? And that's where our implementation scientists, again, brought forth 
really identifying barriers. How could we help with physician behavior? How could we actually change potential transfusion strategies or what were the barriers? And then the last part of that meeting was discussing the knowledge gaps because during taxi, we also, as importantly as present the evidence, also present the areas that lack evidence and how can we put forth research priorities so that we can then uh, focus our efforts in terms of future research in transfusion. After that third meeting, we created the transfusion decision tree and worked very closely with pediatric critical care medicine, which we have to thank their tremendous support during this entire process. And we published our recommendations in pediatric critical care medicine in 2018. And we're most proud of that decision tree that really can be put up at the bedside to really help the decision making, um, walking a patient through that entire process, which we will um, highlight now. That's fascinating. So the, the inclusion criteria is that they had to have demonstrated that they did research in the area, that is specifically on critically ill children. But can I press you again? Tell me again where you got the funding. You said you got it from the NIH and you wrote an, what's called an R13. Over 90% of our experts attended every conference, which is, mm -hmm. uh, which is a tremendous amount of effort. And it's really critical to have them in person. You can do it on phone, but it's very different when you're in person, discussing that back and forth that you have, watching their faces there, watching the, there's just so much more than just words when you're trying to create consensus. And it's really, really important to have everyone in the room um, to make sure that everyone is in preliminary agreement for the recommendations, which is why we felt so passionate about having them in person. I learned that from Polique, um, from uh, Philippe Jovet. We certainly learned a lot through the way. Um, and, and really just with that ultimate goal to be able to provide that guidance at the bedside. And so really taking that 100,000 foot view and saying, the reason why we are here is to be able to help that critically ill child. How do we make these recommendations such that they improve practice but also can be implemented um, because we need to make sure that the practitioner can actually take this and implement it at the bedside. Um, if, you, if it's not able to be implemented, then we're not actually making change. Everyone was there and passionate about improving practice. And to have this group of people in the room to say, we can make a huge difference um, for critically ill children was very um, inspiring. Um, and also just, um, we realized also that we're here and we need to make this happen. We need to have the best product possible. Um, yeah, I would echo that. I would say that there was clear um, vision among the, the, the people who were able to recruit into this process. And I think that the buy-in we got from the experts who really, in fact, uh, Jacques Lacroix, who's one of, uh, you know, the, did the TriPICU study, he started off saying, you know, I've always wanted to do this. This is so needed. And it really just set the tone for someone who, of that, you know, that level to say, this so needs to happen and we're going to make it happen. And the process, like Stacy said, was great. We, we were amazed every, everyone came the first meeting. It was, we had over 40, I think it was 45 people at most of our meetings. Um, and, you know, I think the process was, there was a lot of recommendations. We didn't make it to our final. There's a lot of things we really wanted to be able to provide guidance on that we couldn't. I think the ones we couldn't put in there um, really fueled the knowledge gap aspect of our care. But what we did finally come together with and make recommendations on, we all felt strongly about. And so I think it's, you know, that process left us very um, confident that what we did put out there was something that we all felt very strongly about. So what a helpful roadmap for colleagues across the world on how to develop a process to be thoughtful 
uh, about expert consensus, as you just said, Scott, to fill knowledge gaps. That, that was wonderful. Well, can we turn now back to the specific topic? Yeah, yes, sure. absolutely. And so where, where does the story go from yeah. here? Yeah, so this is the fun part. Yeah. Um, we can actually talk yeah. about the recommendations yeah. themselves and the process. We, uh, last year in September of 2018, we had a full supplement that outlined all the different subgroups and the major uh, recommendations that came out of them and the background. And at the same time, partner with that was a special article that um, outlined all of our recommendations and that we're going to go through kind of piece by piece here and for uh, our listeners. We ended up a total of clinical recommendations of 56 recommendations that ended up being included, uh, 45 specific research recommendations as well. We had a wide range of types of quality of the recommendations, so we graded the recommendations. So as mentioned before, there was really not a lot of data uh, for many of our recommendations, but we did have 36 of the recommendations were based on the expert consensus from our experts. Of those recommendations, so it's really important to do the grade methodology, um, and Jacques' TriPICU study certainly fueled um, that the strong recommendation, moderate quality pediatric evidence, um, which had a 1B rating. Um, five of our recommendations were strong recommendations but had weak quality pediatric evidence, and 11 of them were weak, re weak recommendations with low quality pediatric evidence. So there was a little bit of evidence, but not as robust as, as the adult world. And then 36 were, again, were consensus panel expertise. And 45 of the recommendations were research recommendations, really focusing those research priorities and where do we go from here. So the decision tree that uh, Stacy had mentioned already um, is part of the main article that we tried as best possible to summarize the data that we had put together in recommendation form into a decision tree that could be easy to use um, and actually provide specific guidance to uh, pediatric critical care practitioners around the world. And um, we're going to go through each section a little bit just to kind of give you a sense of what specific recommendations are. And then in, in this decision mm -hmm. tree, we also tried to incorporate as much of the recommendations, um, also the strength of evidence. So you'll find um, A through D throughout the recommendations. So really embedded a lot of the process and a lot of um, the recommendations within this one decision tree um, to help guide decision-making surrounding transfusion. Before getting to the decision tree, we, uh, we actually had some general statements that we felt as a group we wanted to put forth, not necessarily recommendations, but general ways of approaching transfusions. We felt that when there is a decision to transfuse, we wanted to make it very clear that hemoglobin alone is not the only thing to consider. That there's an overall clinical context, signs, symptoms, physiologic markers of oxygen debt that um, should weigh into the decision as well as the risks and benefits and alternatives to transfusion. And this we call the good practice mm -hmm. statement, and it's really just the sounding board before going into any decision making in transfusion. We also wanted to make sure that there's a, a clear statement that anemia should be appropriately managed, investigated, and that transfusion in and of itself isn't the answer, but really causes of anemia need to be addressed. And then also adoption of patient blood management principles should be implemented um, to try to help avoid anemia. So the first uh, branch point of our decision tree was that we started with a critically ill child or a child at risk for critical illness. That was our definition of our, our PICU population. Um, easily, the first branch is if you're in hemorrhagic shock. And there's really no controversy about giving red blood transfusion if someone has hemorrhagic shock. 
but we did want to make a recommendation that there is guidelines out there and there's expert consensus uh, panel recommendation to use a red blood cell plasma platelet ratio of two to red blood cells to one plasma to one platelet or one to one to one when you have a hemorrhagic shock that was, um, you use that ratio until you have no longer have life-threatening bleeding. The next branch point, if you're not in hemorrhagic shock, is looking at your hemoglobin value. So if your hemoglobin is less than five versus five to seven. And in less than five, we made the recommendation to transfuse red cell. There is some, um, not high quality, but some evidence that hemoglobin less than five is associated with increasing morbidity and mortality. In critically ill children with a hemoglobin between 5 to 7, there's insufficient evidence. We really don't know what to do here. Um, and in that, we discuss that it's reasonable to consider transfusion, but based on clinical judgment in these, in these children. There is discussion of ongoing studies um, to consider using 6 um, versus 7 as a transfusion threshold, and so that's in the research world. Um, but there's insufficient evidence to make a specific recommendation between 5 to 7. We just don't know. And so that gets back to the good practice statement. Clinical judgment included our, not just the hemoglobin level itself, but what other factors are with the patient should drive you to transfuse or not. And if you don't have anything else besides hemoglobin, we're not sure that transfusion is really indicated in that situation. So that's where clinical judgment is how we defined it. So if you actually had a hemoglobin greater than seven, we had a different branch point for that, those patients, either hemodynamically stable or hemodynamically unstable. So the hemodynamically unstable, so patients who are coming in septic shock, um, uh, who are still in active resuscitation phase, they're really was uh, unfortunately a paucity of literature to allow us to make specific recommendations about this. So we made a recommendation that we cannot make a recommendation and that we feel that those patients are going to need their own study that was part of our knowledge gap. So that is an area of kind of uh, ongoing uh, need for us to make further recommendations. If you're hemodynamically stable and your hemoglobin is greater than seven, that was an area that we spent a majority of our uh, recommendations on are the different subgroups. We were able to look at if you did have hemodynamic stability and you had the different criteria, then we made very clear recommendations about not transfusing. And we had different subgroups, general critically ill child, uh, post-operative or surgical patients, uh, respiratory failure, uh, excluding severe pediatric ARDS, sepsis, or who are hemodynamically stable, non-life-threatening bleeding, or anybody requiring renal replacement therapy. Any patient in, that had any of those criteria, we made a strong recommendation not to transfuse those patients if their hemoglobin was greater than 7. In the acute brain injury patient, um, we made the recommendation to consider red cell transfusions because we don't have enough strong evidence to say not to transfuse. So the recommendations in those patients were to consider transfusion if the hemoglobin is between 7 to 10 and that further research was needed. Stacy, before we leave acute brain injury, were there representatives from the Brain Trauma Foundation uh, guidelines um, on your development committee so that there was a coordination of the assessment of the evidence? Yes, there was. Dr. Robert Tasker was, was on Taxi, one of our experts. We we're very lucky to have him, and he provided a tremendous amount of support um, looking at recommendations for acute brain injury. And the, the situation for um, uh, stem cell transplant patients? 
So that we um, say to consider red cell transfusions between a hemoglobin of 7 to 8. And that was really driven by the data in oncology is a lot of the data had 8 as a threshold mm -hmm. instead of what a lot of the research in the critical care world had 7. So we had to say between 7 and 8, which is where that came from. Mm. We had other kind of more systemic illnesses like allo or autoimmune hemolytic anemia, severe PARDS defined as based on your oxygenation index, or patients on ECMO or other supportive devices like VAD um, who we use the use clinical judgment as our recommendation, kind of the same thing I said before, that it wasn't red cell alone, but how do you, using kind of clinical judgment in a, as a guide for doing red blood cells. That's a wonderful overview and, and terrific guidance for so many disorders in the context of hemodynamic stability, but I can't resist asking you both as experts who are experts in the research and who care for critically ill children. And I'm struggling with how we ever going to do a study in the hemodynamic instability context, which as you noted, Scott, you couldn't reach recommendations on because there is such little literature. But could you see yourself randomizing a patient with hemodynamic instability because they had severe pediatric ARDS or they were on ECMO or threatening the need for ECMO? How, how are, Do you feel like you could be at equipoise to do such a study? I feel like the hemodynamic unstable patient was at an area that we really wanted as a group to be able to make recommendations on, and we were unable to because there really wasn't the data. Um, so it became a very large knowledge gap to us. Um, but what was fairly fascinating as part of this process is to see how those knowledge gaps are galvanizing our taxi group. So there's actually a few of our experts are actually involved and spearheading ongoing research, including randomized controlled trial in ECMO patients, uh, randomized trial in hemodynamically unstable patients, specifically to answer these questions that we don't know. And so it's really, um, I think that there's enough data to suggest that maybe transfusions may not be helpful in critical illness, that the, I think that the equipoise has been generated to allow us to do these research. Um, and I think that um, we really needed to kind of come together and recognize that, um, that there are risks to transfusion and that we really should try to avoid unnecessary transfusions. And we don't know in those hemodynamically unstable patients whether red blood cells are the right therapy or not. Could be other volume should be would be better. We don't know. And I think that's really, that unknown was very clear in the room on many times. And so that has spurred a lot of interest and in kind of pushing, pushing the envelope of what we can do. Well, that's a terrific overview of so many of the common disorders uh, in the care of a critically ill child. But of course, there is one very large domain um, that we haven't discussed yet. And that is, what is the evidence um, in the care of a child with congenital heart disease? Um, do we have evidence to make recommendations? Excellent question. We do have evidence uh, based on small studies, actually small RCT studies uh, performed by Jill Gillette, um, who was fortunate to be on our taxi group, um, looking at transfusion threshold in the congenital heart disease. Um, and in these studies, we looked at, we broke it down into uncorrected congenital heart disease, biventricular repair, single ventricles in stage one palliation, two or three, as well as congenital acquired myocardial dysfunction and pulmonary hypertension. So in these studies, what we're seeing is that there is evidence that we can lower that threshold, which is, a, which is also a very big jump in this field um, and in the congenital heart disease patient. 
With uncorrected congenital heart disease, there are rec our recommendations were to transfuse red cells to maintain a hemoglobin of seven to nine, depending on their cardiac reserve, which is a shift certainly down. Biventricular repair, the recommendation was not to give a transfusion if the hemoglobin was above seven. And the single ventricle stage one palliation, no transfusion of the hemoglobin was greater than nine, which is also a shift. Um, and there's adequate oxygenation and adequate and normal end organ function. So we do have to remember those good practice statements um, when we think about um, transfusion. But if there are those, if they do have ad adequate oxygenation, normal end organ, end organ function, we don't have to transfuse if the hemoglobin is over nine. And the single ventricle stage two or three, the same, no transfusion if the hemoglobin is over nine. And the congenital require myocardial dysfunction, there's insufficient evidence, as well as the pulmonary hypertension world, insufficient evidence. But what we did say is that there's no evidence that transfusion above 10 is beneficial. We just don't know how, how low to go. Um, and so this was um, really kind of spirit heading that population and transfusion practices. A couple of the other recommendations we had about specific population sickle cell disease. So the requirement for a recommendation for exchange transfusion if you have unstable uh, acute chest syndrome or a simple transfusion if you have um, a compensated acute chest syndrome. And also if a sickle cell patient is undergoing a simple procedure or a surgical procedure or required anesthesia, we recommend that they, a target hemoglobin of 10 is reached to decrease the amount of hemoglobin S. Last recommendations are alternative processing for blood products. So we had um, blood bankers on the uh, Traxi initiative as well, and they recommended the two things we asked for, ir irradiation and washing. Uh, irradiated was recommended for red blood cells if there is a child at risk for transfusion-associated graft-versus-host disease or due to severe congenital or acquired causes of immune deficiency on uh, that specific population. And the washed blood cells was only if you had a history of severe uh, reaction to red blood cells in the past. If you're caring for a hemodynamically unstable patient tomorrow, uh, and it's a patient, it's a child of six years old who's been previously well, but they're in septic shock and they have uh, multiple organ failure that's evolving. Um, and you don't know, know the trajectory of this. You're wondering, is this patient going to need ECMO? Is this patient going to survive? This looks, you know, very serious. Um, and the patient's blood pressure is low and you've added vasoactive infusions. And now the question becomes, you know, should you increase oxygen delivery? What are you going to do? What hemoglobin threshold are you going to do in that patient? Um, I think that you're asking, you know, you're exposing the hole in the recommendations because we weren't able to make recommendations on that specific population. I think that if we look back and say, okay, what percentage of transfusions in the PICU are actually going to fit into that category, they're probably a lot less than you think. Majority of the transfusions we found are actually in populations that we did try to provide guidance on. And I think that, you know, what we do in our institution is if anybody's being transfused and they're not following the criteria, we actually have two people who are going to make you very accountable to it very quickly. Um, and I think that having a, in, a champion at, at your institution and or having what uh, Stacy mentioned before, patient blood management strategies to provide guidelines for transfusion across the board, I think is really critical. When we actually get to an area that we don't have recommendations on, say it was an ECMO patient or someone who's unstable, like you mentioned, we really 
don't know enough to say this hemoglobin threshold should be used, but I feel like we have at least provided a framework to say how do you put in clinical judgment so that you can actually use things like hemoglobin as one factor. What other factors are suggesting that there's an oxygen deficit? We also need to recognize that red blood cells may actually not improve oxygen delivery in a truly uh, true massive inflammatory state, um, that the red, uh, foreign red cells may actually not provide the adequate oxygen that we need. So I think that we fall back to what is it that we feel will, um, taking all those factors together, will make a transfusion threshold um, more uh, amenable to give, giving a transfusion. So we will still give transfusions for unstable patients. Probably um, if, if their hemoglobin is nine or 10, or even if there's a sense that there's a, a poor oxygen deficit in that resuscitation phase. I feel like the resuscitation phase, there's still a sense that we should be giving transfusions more than we uh, would do if they, as stable patients. But I think that resuscitation phase is actually hopefully relatively short in the grand scheme of that patient. And once you're actually into the stabilization phase, then we have very clear guidance on what to do. So in that patient that I described, you would uh, transfuse if their hemoglobin was 7 and their lactate's just a little bit elevated and their mixed venous is just a little bit low? Uh, I wish we had a, a true physiologic marker that could really, besides hemoglobin, that says, yes, this, this is a transfusable patient. Um, but really, the data is not clear enough to say that there's one marker that, so you have to take the whole patient as a whole and decide whether that patient could potentially benefit during the resuscitation phase of uh, the illness to have a transfusion. And knowing that you're potentially putting them at risk with uh, inflammatory complications um, related to uh, foreign red blood cells. So Scott, Stacy, that's just a wonderful overview um, and really uh, helpful guidance. Um, I'm sitting here thinking this is just so helpful in terms of decision-making at the bedside, which was your goal. But now, where do we go next? That's a great question. And we want to ensure that the dissemination of the taxi guidelines, as well as implementation. So currently, we're actually studying the implementation of the taxi guidelines. Those implementation scientists that were part of the taxi process um, have developed a multi-center randomized control trial and are looking at using implementation strategies, the decision tree, clinical decision support, a multimodal, multidisciplinary strategy, physician behaviors, to understand how taxi is implemented at the bedside and does it improve outcomes. We're evaluating the feasibility, acceptability, and impact on practice. Um, so we're very excited that this is currently underway. And we also thought that was very important when we started Taxi to, to mention that we wanted to see, um, not only did we put these out there, but we wanted to study it post. And so that was a decision very made very early on. Um, so we're very excited that this is um, underway. The next part is to um, conduct the next phases of Taxi. So at the very beginning, we talked about the first series was on red cell transfusions. So we are are currently underway and the second form of taxi, taxi cab, is control and avoidance of bleeding. Um, and this is to develop comprehensive evidence-based um, and when evidence is lacking expert-based recommendations on plasma and platelet use in critically ill children. Um, this is led by Marianne Nellis um, and it focuses on indications thresholds for prophylactic and therapeutic transfusions. These are the subgroups of um, looking at uh, plasma and platelet use. 
And the final is to update the recommendations periodically. So this is not a static process. We recognize that new literature is, is continually um, coming out on transfusion. And so the plan is every five to 10 years to update the entire taxi process um, and to really provide that update similar to other guidelines that we have for critically ill children to provide that update on taxi um, to make it a living guideline. We want to spur new research. Clearly, our taxi experts are involved with some new uh, initiatives out there, randomized controlled trials looking at either lowering the hemoglobin threshold even further, use in ECMO, use in uh, hemodynamically unstable patients. There's a lot of uh, activity that's been spurred by this. And I think we're hoping that there's data that's going to make these recommendations more robust, more, gui more guideline focused. And, uh, you know, I think that f in five years, at the, at the very least, we're going to look again. Maybe it's already been a year since publication and we already know there's some data that we're going to put into our recommendations. So it's it's exciting time for how these uh, recommendations will evolve. Well, uh, Dr. Scott Bateman and Dr. Stacy Valentine from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, thank you for sharing your expertise today um, and developing a, a very helpful process and now recommendations. Uh, for colleagues around the world to improve care for the critically ill child. Thanks for having Thank us. You. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.